The reading is from Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 20. A final word. Be strong with the Lord's mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies and tricks of the devil. For we're not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against those mighty powers of darkness who rule this world, and against wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. Use every piece of God's armor to resist the enemy in the time of evil, so that after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the sturdy belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news, so that you'll be fully prepared. In every battle, you will need faith as your shield to stop the fiery arrows aimed at you by Satan. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times and on every occasion in the power of the Holy Spirit. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all Christians everywhere. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words as I boldly explain God's secret plan that the good news is for the Gentiles too. I am in chains now for preaching this message as God's ambassador, but pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. The word of the Lord. Amen. <laughs> this happens every single time. My mic falls off. Talk about starting on the right foot, right? A trip as I come up the platform. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Jelena and I have had a fantastic week. Thank you all for your emails. I understand Pastor Norb <laughs> encouraged you all to send us emails. We got many, and uh, that was great. Uh, both mom and baby are doing really well. Do you guys want to see a picture? There she is. Yeah, so that's Elizabeth Grace. And, I figured for this morning we'll just look at pictures of her. So I got about a hundred of them queued up. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've been doing these last few days is just, just staring at her. She's really, really precious. Um, so we've been in Ephesians for quite a while. It's been a blessing. I don't know if you've experienced that. If you're feeling like, man, Ephesians is dragging on. Hopefully you're not feeling that way. But yeah, as we round the corner into the end of Ephesians, uh, we wanted to spend a bit of extra time in the armor of God. And there's a lot of good reasons to do that. And one of them is that I think Paul is really retracing his steps. He's, he's talking about these themes of faith and, and peace and salvation. And they're all things that he's already talked about. But bigger than that, Paul is coming off of all of this teaching where he's telling us what it looks like for us to live a life worthy. Because that's what we desire. I, I desire that. I want to live a life that is worthy of the calling to which I've been called. That's Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. And Paul goes on to, to explain to us what that looks like. And over these last few weeks we've been talking about the armor of God as something that is supplied to us by God that enables us and empowers us in standing firm in our ability to live this life, worthy, life that is worthy. Because living a life that is worthy isn't always easy. And Paul acknowledges that. Right after he comes off his teaching in chapter 6 about how we're to act in our workplace, he says that we need to stand firm. 
And we need to stand firm because there's going to be opposition to us living this Christian life. There's going to be opposition that's trying to push us back and keep us from living the way that God wants us to live. And so we think about this opposition and say, well, what do we do, Paul? And he says, you got to stand firm. And we might hear that we need to stand firm and say, well, what does that look like? And that's what we've been talking about these, these last uh, few weeks. We've been talking about the armor of God. And Paul makes it so clear, and Heather just read for us. Um, and in your notes there, that fill in the blank, it's really just a review of the last few weeks. This idea that we need to put on the belt of truth. Uh, and that not only is it the belt of truth, but Paul says there that we need to gird our loins in truth. Which is recognizing that we need to have a posture that, that we're just postured as ready to go. We're ready to fight. We're ready for battle. Which recognizes this reality that sin doesn't always look like sin. Evil doesn't always look like evil. But it's one of those things where maybe you start doing something or acting a certain way and, and suddenly you find that you've crossed the line. Uh, so, but we need to be prepared for that. To put on the belt of truth. He says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And we talked about how that's not our righteousness. It's not saying that I'm good enough. I'm, I'm, I've got this. I got this all together. It's, it's instead recognizing it's the righteousness of Christ. We need to put on Christ's righteousness. Shoes fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. The shoes of peace. Knowing that the salvation that Jesus works in our lives brings peace between us and God but that we also have the blessing of receiving peace from God. And that enables and empowers us. That we need to take up a shield of faith. And Paul goes on here to talk about how the enemy is, is shooting arrows at us, trying to discourage us, trying to keep us from walking and living in the ways that we ought to live and walk. And so we guard ourselves using the shield of faith. And so today, we'll be concluding this mini-series by looking at the final two pieces mentioned. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So we're going to dive, just, just dive right into this. The helmet of salvation. Now, I was thinking about the helmet of salvation, and I think the reality of this is, it's amazing how this is something that covers our mind. It's something that comes over our heads, and it protects us and guards us. And I think the reality of salvation is something that Paul has been really excited about in the book of Ephesians. And he, he begins his book by expressing this excitement in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, it's, it, we don't see this so much in the, in the English translation, but if we were reading it in the Greek, we would see that the first chapter of Ephesians, the first 14 verses are just one long sentence. And it's Paul going on and on. I called it an explosive discourse. On how God has blessed us, he's chosen us, predestined us, bestowed upon us, he's lavished grace upon us, he's revealed truth to us, and how he's united all things in Christ. And at the beginning of Ephesians, it's as if Paul starts writing and he just can't stop, and he's going on and on about all these things that God has done for us. And the common denominator of each of these things is this reality that God is working salvation. Why is he doing all of these things? Because he desires to work salvation. When we think of familiar verses in scripture, um, I remember as a child, the very first verse I had to learn in Sunday school, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
And then it goes on from this at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he might save, sorry, in order that the world might be saved through him. Salvation. God is interested in our salvation. Now a good definition of salvation, we could say, is that salvation is the rescue from a state of danger and restoration to wholeness and prosperity. A rescue from a state of danger and restoration to wholeness and prosperity. And if this is true, I believe the helmet of salvation is worn then as a declaration of our confidence in having been rescued and restored. When we put on that helmet of salvation, it's us declaring, I have been rescued, I have been restored. And this leads to a very natural question, doesn't it? Well, what did I need rescue from? What did I need restoration from? Friends, how often we can forget this. We don't like to think of ourselves as people who need rescuing. We don't like to think of ourselves as as people who need to be restored. To think about ourselves in this way is is actually very countercultural. We live in a society that is very deliberately trying to, to keep things from being broken. We want to see everything restored. We don't want people to be sick. We don't want uh, anything to be wrong. You know, we, we go around in our days where we talk to people and say, how are you doing? How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. We, we don't want people to see that maybe below the surface things aren't going well. We don't want them to see that maybe things aren't quite as put together as you appear. Because I don't want to appear weak. I don't want to appear like someone who could be taken advantage of. So our society is very content to put on these masks and put on these faces. And we just, we don't want to appear as if we're in need. We don't want to come across as if we're in need. The helmet of salvation, though, is a reminder that we are very, very, very much in need. That we are very much in need. So what have we been saved from? Well, we've been saved from sin. We've been rescued from sin. And we don't like that word, sin. You know, we hear it and we're like, eh, sin. And uh, a few summers ago, I was at Camp Caroline speaking with some uh, grade schoolers. And I was trying to illustrate sin. And so I brought a dartboard up onto the platform. And I had a couple of grade six students come on the platform. And I gave them some throwing darts. (laughs) And this was a great idea. And uh, I set up the dartboard in the corner, and I told them, you know, let's throw these darts. I want you to hit the target. So we're at Camp Caroline. We're in the dining room doing our discovery time, and these kids are throwing darts (laughs) at this target. And I I can't remember how many darts they threw, but I do remember that not a single dart hit the dartboard. (laughs) You know, the the darts are going all over the place. And they're throwing these things, and they keep missing, they keep missing. And afterwards, I I asked the group, I said, well, they didn't do it. Neither one of these students were able to hit the bullseye. And I said, should I give them a prize? You know, and it's interesting, as all the students at camp were like, yeah, yeah, you should still give them a prize. You should still give them a prize. I was like, why? They missed. They missed. When we look at the word sin in scripture, very simply, it means that you have missed the mark. Sin is missing the mark. 
So we have that dartboard. The dartboard has a bullseye right in the middle, and we throw a dart at it, and we can't hit the middle. We're missing the mark. I heard from the archery instructor that week that every time a student missed the the bullseye in archery, they said, you're sitting, you're sitting. (laughs) That's so funny. And as we read scripture, we come to understand that we have a, a sin nature, which is this predisposition of being unable to meet God's standards. And that we naturally desire not to walk with God. And and you might hear that and go, what, really? That doesn't sound very nice. But we read in Romans chapter 3, Paul says that there is no distinction. For all have sinned, all have missed the mark. And because they've missed the mark, they've fallen short of the glory of God. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about truth. And I held up a plumb line which is just a string with a a weight on the bottom. And I said that, you know, as I hold this string, once the weight stops moving, the string is perfectly straight up and down. Well, if that is the mark, if that's the standard in which we're to live our lives, anytime we're off-tilter, off-kilt, not lined up with that, we're missing the mark. And the scriptures teach us that sin has present consequences. Sin has present consequences. And Paul talks about this right in Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 11. He writes, Remember that you at one time were Gentiles in the flesh. You were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the people of God, the commonwealth of Israel. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. And you were without God. Man, Paul's not being very nice. And he highlights here in this text that there's consequences to sin. It leads to separation from God. Having no hope without God in the world. The scriptures also teach us that sin has eternal consequences. And Jesus talks about this a lot in the Gospels. And it kind of culminates in Matthew chapter 25 when when Jesus is talking about the end of the age when he comes and and he judges. And he talks about separating the people. And he says that the unrighteous will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Paul, again in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we read all these texts, it becomes very, very clear to me that we are a people who are in need, who are in a state of danger, who are in need of restoration, who are in need of being made whole. You know, those students at camp who said that I should give the chocolate bar to these kids who missed the mark, what they wanted is for me to award them with something that only a professional darts person could do. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He came in his righteousness. He became righteous on our behalf. And he worked salvation for us so that we could come into relationship with him. And that's the ending of that Ephesians chapter 2 verse that I read earlier. It doesn't end with verse 12. It goes on in verse 13. He says, but God, in verse 13... But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Jesus has worked salvation. Jesus has worked salvation. And salvation has an immediate reality for us. Something happens immediately. Salvation becomes the basis of our identity. No longer is our identity based on what we do, on what we have, on how we look or how we feel. But rather our our identity is based in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Being a Christian is about being living in that salvation reality. We are a saved people, a people who have been redeemed, who have been brought out of a state of danger, who have been restored. And it changes everything. It changes everything. God's act of saving us was an act that declared His love for us. It was a testimony of God's love for us. He did not spare His only Son in saving us. He didn't want to see us lost in sin. He worked this so that we may become His children. And we read about that in Galatians chapter 4, where it says in Galatians 4 verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might have adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's our salvation identity. It's an immediate reality. It's something that we experience day in and day out as Christians, living in the reality of our salvation. Salvation also has an eternal reality. And we read about that in Revelation uh, chapter 21. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You know, we sang about this this morning in our worship. When I wake up in the land of glory, with the saints I will tell my story. There will be one name that I proclaim. And it's because of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ that we can get up on a Sunday morning and sing that. That we recognize that life isn't simply about our experience here and now. That we're born one day, we die another, and that's the end of it. But rather, we have an eternity to live. That we are born one day, and yes, we will die, but the Bible teaches that for those of us who have hope in Jesus Christ, that we will be raised And we will spend eternity with him. Friends, that is a great, great hope. One that we don't think about enough. And we have certainty of our hope. You know, in our faith, in our Christian lives, we can get tired. We may wonder if it's worth it. We may wonder if we can keep going. But placing the helmet of salvation on our heads gives us the confidence that we are in the hands of God. That we can stand firm. That our salvation is secure. Our final redemption in Jesus is secure. It is a confidence that he who began a good work in us will bring it to, to carry it, will carry it out to completion. And this Christian life that we live, friends, it is a salvation life. It's a salvation life. So how do we put on the helmet of salvation? 
Well, it begins with us receiving salvation. We put on salvation by receiving salvation. And we can't receive salvation without us coming to God and admitting to Him that we are a person who is in need of rescue and is in need of redemption. Very simply, it's coming to God and saying, God, I understand, I see that that you have a way that you desire me to live. But in my own strength and in all of my efforts, I I can't live up to that. I'm going to miss the mark time and time and time again. It's confessing your need for Jesus, saying, Jesus, I need you. I need your righteousness. It's receiving that, it's repenting of sin, saying that you're sorry. And asking that God's spirit would would indwell your life and empower you to live a life of righteousness. So we receive salvation. Secondly, we live in light of eternity. We live in light of eternity. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes that since you have been raised with Christ, he says, set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. He says the same thing in in Romans where he says that those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. We live in light of this salvation. The salvation experience can often be reduced to eternal security. Uh, It is a later thing, but not not a now thing. Um, And I I was thinking about this um, just recently in the end of June the staff were able to go to this high adventure experience us, do some leadership training. And uh, part of that experience was mountain biking. And we're off in the Rocky Mountains. We're, we're riding these, these mountain bikes. And the great thing about this experience was they weren't just teaching us, uh, we weren't just out on a bike ride, but they were also teaching us how to ride these, ba- how to ride these bikes. And if you can imagine, we're, we're biking in the Rockies. So it's just this beautiful, beautiful thing. And at one time, the instructor pulled us over and he said, okay, guys, Um, I have a bag of Skittles, and I'm going to throw these Skittles along the path as we bike, and I want you to count the Skittles as we're going along. And so we're like, okay, yeah. And so he takes off, and and we're following behind him, and we're all staring at the ground trying to find Skittles. And uh, he stops again, and he says, well, who found Skittles? How many Skittles did I drop? And we're like, I don't know, you know, you think you should... Was there one? Did I see one? Did I see two? Because I don't, I don't think I saw any Skittles. And he's like, there were no Skittles. <laughs> and the point of the exercise was he wanted us to bike and, and to focus on what's right in front of us. He's like, I want you to see what's right in front of you. He said, but for this next stretch of road, I, I want you to take your eyes off what's just right in front of you. And I want you to look around. And don't look at what's right in front of you. And so we biked that. And I remember when we finished that ride, he said, how was that experience? You know, it was weird. You know, you feel kind of scared. You're biking along. You're, you're like, oh, what's in front of me? Am I going to fall? And I think what a great picture. Because I think in Christianity, there's this tension between the now and the next. You know, sometimes we're, we're biking along and, and we're so fixed on the now. It's like we're looking for Skittles, but we're biking in the Rocky Mountains. And there's so much beauty all around us, but we're not lifting our heads to see it. Because we're so caught up in the now. But the invitation of Scripture is to be aware that there's so much more. There's so much more. There is an eternity with Jesus awaiting us. But how often do we get so distracted by the skittles of this world 
that we miss what's coming. We miss the next. But then the importance of to be a good bike rider, you're, you're aware of what's now, but you're also aware of what's next. You're, you're seeing both. It's a tension we have in our Christian walk. So we put on the helmet of salvation by receiving salvation, by living in light of eternity. Lastly, we live out of our salvation identity. We live out of our salvation identity. You know, if I base my identity on my preaching, I will no doubt be disappointed. If I base my identity on my possessions, I will no doubt be disappointed. Our identity is only secured and solid in one thing. And that's the work of Jesus. This reality that we are a saved people. The truth that you are a child of God. That he loves you. That he is pleased with you. And we live in our salvation identity as we rest in the truth that God has got us. It's secure. He's got us in his hand. The enemy does not like when we put on the helmet of salvation. The enemy wants to keep us questioning our worth. He wants to tell us that we're unworthy, we're unloved, that we're incapable, we're undesirable, unforgivable, unknown, insignificant, that we're a mistake. You see how that keeps us from being able to stand firm? But when we put on that helmet of salvation, it silences the voice of the accuser who wishes to attack our confidence and our future hope, who wishes to attack our identity. The helmet of salvation reminds us of our need for God and gives us the confidence that we need. So Paul tells us to take up the helmet of salvation. And he finishes off the armor by saying, and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. You know, Paul's not saying anything new here. Uh, Throughout Scripture, we see this correlation between the Word of God, the spoken Word of God, and a sword. In Revelation, we get this picture of Jesus riding on a white horse, and there's a sword coming out of his mouth. It's a weird picture. And this may well include the words of defense and testimony, which Jesus promised his Holy Spirit would put into his followers' lips. But there's this biblical principle that the Word of God has power. The Word of God has power. We see that in the creation narrative, where, where, Jesus, where God created the world with a Word. Jesus is called the Word. Hebrews chapter 1, he says that God has spoken to us by His Son. And friends, we are so blessed in this day and age to have God's Word written down for us. In these 66 books put together for us to get familiar with and to to learn more about. So we have God's word. It's available to us. But what do we do with it? What good is it? Well, the Bible teaches us a lot about itself. In Psalm 119, uh, verse 105, this is a very familiar passage. Um, Do you have it up there, Lucas? Yeah, God's word is, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. We're familiar with that passage, this idea that God's word will give us direction. Psalm chapter 1 goes on to teach us about what it looks like to be the blessed person. It says, blessed is the man 
And it, and it contrasts the blessed person to the person who is wicked. And it says that the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, on God's word. And on his law, he meditates both day and night. Paul is writing to a young pastor, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And he writes that all scripture is God, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there's this truth that God's word, as we get into his word, as we learn about his word, as we listen to his word, it does a work in us that makes us complete, makes us equipped for every good work. In the context of Ephesians chapter 6, God's word makes us able to stand firm, stand firm. You might say, well, this is great, Pastor, but, but how do I experience this? Well, I think the distinction that Paul makes is very appropriate. He says that it is the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit. There's a deep connection in Scripture between the Spirit of God and His Word. We should not pursue the Word of God, hearing God's Word, without also pursuing the Spirit of God. You know, in the Greek, uh, we read this word logos quite often. And logos is often associated with the Son. It's associated with Jesus. We read that in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. It was the logos. We understand that to be Jesus. Um, And we understand Jesus then is the expression of God as the Word of God. The other Greek word we see um, that's translated often into the word word is rhema. And the rhema word of God is often associated with the Spirit of God. And the case, that's the case here in Ephesians chapter 6. That it's the sword of the Spirit, the rhema of God. And the rhema of God, the distinction there, the word rhema, is, it's like the spoken word of God, the utterances of God. I think the application for us is that the Spirit of God helps us to understand and apply the Word of God. The Spirit of God helps us to understand and apply the Word of God. It takes what is written in God's Word and it applies it to our lives. By God's Spirit, we come to understand and read the Scriptures as if God is speaking directly to us. You know, have you ever experienced that? You know, so many times I've been reading the Bible in my morning devotions and I'm dealing with something in my personal life that's, that's troubling me. I'm going through a bad experience or something and I'm just reading along and, you know, it's the reading for the day and I read and it's like, God, you are speaking directly to me right now. These words that I'm reading this morning, they, wow, this is exactly what I needed to hear. What's well, the rhema of God. God's speaking directly to me. That these, they go from being just words on a page to being full of life. So we need to take up the sword. We need to take up God's word, which requires us to know God's word. You know, so often as pastors, we stand up and we, we tell our congregations, you need to read your Bibles and you need to pray. Uh, and I think oftentimes as congregants, we might sit there going, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Do I just start at Genesis chapter 1 and just start reading along? And then you get to Leviticus and you're like, oh my goodness, I am not, okay. Um, And maybe that's when you stop reading God's word. 
so maybe you have some questions about well, what does that look like? Well, last year, or well, the beginning, I guess, of this year, uh, we did a class here at the church called How to Read the Bible. And part of that class was a podcast series that we put out. And that podcast series is um, all available online. If you go to our website, uh, there's a link to the How to Read the Bible podcast. And I want to break down really quickly uh, just one of those podcast episodes that helps us in how do we take up the sword? How do we read God's word? Well, the first part of that, I believe, is that we need to establish a goal. We need to establish a goal of, God, of reading God's word. If the goal is memorization, um, then you're going to read it in, in a different way than if the goal is to read the Bible in a year. Um, my personal, when I approach God's word, my goal is to hear from God. I want to hear what God has to say to me. I want to know what God's word says. And because I have that goal, it means that I read slowly. It means that I'm not reading huge chunks at a time. But it's important to establish a goal. Once you have a goal, you should probably make a plan. You know, I find the most uh, derailing thing in my personal reading is when I don't have a plan. And you almost sit down like, I don't even know what to read today. So maybe you don't. But giving a bit of structure to your morning reading time, where you know what you're going to read on each day, uh, is incredibly, incredibly helpful. So you want to establish a goal, you want to make a plan, and you want to pray. <laughs> you want to pray before you read God's Word. Now, we just talked about this, that we should never separate God's Word from His Spirit. And I think we can do that when we just jump into it and just start reading. But if we believe that this is God's Word, and we believe that God wants to speak to us, we need to come before His Word and, and humble ourselves and ask and pray that God would speak to us. Pray that God would, would highlight a verse to you. Pray that he would speak to you through his word. Next, you need to make it engaging. Make Bible reading engaging. Um, sometimes when reading the Bible, it can feel really dry. And it's difficult at times. Um, but there's a couple ways that I try to make my Bible reading more engaging. And, and one of that is to highlight so I, I take pencil crayons and I mark up my Bible like crazy. Some people think that that's like a sin to <laughs> highlight your Bible. Um, but I highlight my Bible quite a bit. Uh, if you saw Ephesians in my Bible, you'd probably find it hard to read because it's so uh, color-coded and, and different things. Um, so that's a great way to help. Uh, the other way to help is by journaling. Um, and journaling is this amazing way. You know, say you're reading along and, and a verse jumps out at you. You can stop and you can... Open your journal and write down that verse. And maybe in your journal you just write, God, what do you want to say to me through this verse? Or you might journal about a difficult situation and then write about how that verse interacts with, with this difficult situation you're going through. There are so many ways that we can engage in reading God's word. And I just want to say as a pastor to, to each of you that you don't have to read the entire Bible every year. <laughs> you know, if you just read Ephesians this year, that's awesome. The important thing is that you take time to be in God's word, to hear God's word. So we take up the sword of, of the spirit, the word of God, by reading the Bible, by knowing God's word. But we also speak the word. We speak the word in standing firm. You know, we need to use God's word against the enemy. And this is demonstrated for us by Jesus. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the enemy came at Jesus with accusations, he came with him with temptations. And each time, we see Jesus standing firm by declaring the word of God back to the enemy. 
So God's word, his rhema word spoken to us, we speak out, we proclaim it back, and it helps us to stand firm and to overcome the enemy. So that is the armor of God. Paul instructs us, stand firm. Stand firm. Well, how do we do that? Well, we stand firm with truth, with righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. The word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I praise you that you do not leave us or forsake us. Lord, I praise you that you don't give us instruction into what a worthy life looks like and then just say, well, good luck figuring this out. Instead, Jesus, you come alongside us. Lord, you give us everything that we need in order that we may stand firm. Lord, you've revealed truth to us. You've blessed us with the righteousness of Jesus. You've blessed us with peace. Lord, you've increased our faith. You've worked salvation in our lives. And Lord, you've provided for us your word. So Father, you are not far off. But Lord, you're you're very near. You desire to speak to us. And God, maybe there's those of us this morning who are really struggling to stand firm. Struggling to know what that looks like. Struggling to know what that means. But Father, I pray that just by the power of your spirit, you would equip each and every one of us here. Lord, I pray that you would place on us your armor. Or that you would place on us your truth, your righteousness, your peace, your faith, Lord. Lord, help us to be aware of the salvation that you have worked. And Lord, speak to us through your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, Lord. Help us to stand firm. Just praise you, Jesus. We bless your name. Amen.